It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the, according to that, it says Sunday, but it's the Wednesday edition. Sorry about that uh, typo there. Uh, the Wednesday edition of Daily Thunder. And uh, we are in a series called Spiritual Lessons from World War II, which I'm not exactly sure how many of you are passionate about things like World War II history. Uh, I happen to uh, find a tremendous thrill. In fact, it sort of, uh, it makes me wonder sometimes, like, why do I enjoy understanding history so much, but then war history especially? And I, because I'm not into killing, I'm not into even weapons, I'm not into planes, I'm not into tanks necessarily, even though I find it all fascinating. It's not necessarily that, it's the engagement of the soul in difficulty that it, it is of extreme interest to me. Uh, I have faced a lot of difficulty in my life just standing up for what I've stood for, and in a sense, it's helped explain to me a lot of what has taken place in my life. It explains the spiritual battle that I'm in, and it shows me men and how they responded. That's the reason I like Christian biography, too. It's like, okay, set a man in a, in a difficult circumstance and give him the truth, Now I want to see how he uses it. And it's like a lesson to me. Of course, the Bible is that, but it's really interesting to see it in history and to see men that cowered, that fell to pieces, and that gave in, under the pressure, and also to see those that rise up and lay down their life for what they believe in. It's deeply inspiring to me. But the history of World War II, and, and I've said this before, but uh, it, it flows out of World War I. It's, it's impossible to understand World War II without really understanding World War I, and it's, it's a fascinating statement, but most American school kids, if you want to say it that way, understand World War II a lot better than they understand World War I. And yet, World War I and World War II are almost like tied at the hip because World War II is the result of World War I. World War I ended with a, the Treaty of Versailles, which was so heavy-handed on the part of the Allies, especially the French, on the German nation, which created a backlash that you're going to see a fierce backlash. The, in, the, in the country of Germany there was a, a deep, abiding angst, anger, and hatred. But it wasn't just towards the Allies, towards the French, which was definitely true because they've been long-time enemies, the Germans and the French. However, it was towards even their own people. And they would have, it was called the stab-in-the-back theory, actually. There's even a name to it. That the... The Germans, a certain rank of Germans actually believed that they were betrayed into the Versailles Treaty, that this wasn't what the German people wanted. This wasn't in the favor of the nation of Germany. This was uh, the Jews that actually tr betrayed their country. And it was not just the Jews, but it was the Jews and the Bolsheviks, which we would understand as the communists. And to someone like Hitler, he would say, Communists and Jews are basically the same thing. Communism is just a whole bunch of Jews. This is like literally their oversimplified way of thinking to the point that Hitler, when he's rising up, was the, one of the sponsors, the key sponsors of the stab-in-the-back theory. So 
in regaining the glory of Germany, you have to recognize he wants to take out that which destroyed Germany in the first place, which wasn't the allies in his mind, even though it was. It was his own people. It was the Jews and the Bolsheviks. So you're going to see in World War II his hate and his spite be lashed out against the Jews and against Stalin and the communists. And he calls it the extermination war, where when he fought to the West against uh, France, against uh, Great Britain, you know, it's, it's a more normal, dignified form of battle. But when he fought to the East against Stalin, kill women, children, anyone that moves, kill them. I mean, the mentality behind it is so shocking, but it's, it's the outflow of World War I. World War I is just a terrible tale. And to understand World War II, but World War II is not that far from where we are right now. I mean, it, it feels like it because none of us lived during it, but a lot of our grandparents actually could have been involved in it. I know that on my side, my grandparents were right uh, smack during that time. My dad was born in 1941 and is named Winston. You know, so you can just see even my grandparents and their thinking in regards to the significance of this. And my middle name is Winston. And so the, the connection that I have with this is, is real, just like it is for you. But we distance ourselves from these things. And I would like to just explore it at another level. But not so that we just have historical understanding, but so that we have spiritual life understanding of how to live this life. I still really haven't gotten to the war. I've been dealing with the years up to the war, even though I keep hinting at the war, I keep mentioning it. But the name of this one is called Radical Disarmament. And disarmament means to remove weapons. In other words, you have weapons, and they are superior to your foe. But as a show of kindness and graciousness and goodwill, you actually get rid of your weapons. You destroy your weapons so that your enemy doesn't feel threatened. It's a very nice gesture, don't you think? But it's a really fascinating one when you begin to realize what is going to happen because of what we could call radical disarmament. The allied nations, in a sense, almost have this guilt feeling for putting Germany in the position that they put them in. And so you're going to see them begin to pacify. It's like, we are so sorry that we did this. It's like this next generation rises up, just sort of like you see in our country where we make excuses. I'm so sorry for the church. I'm so sorry for this idea that homosexuality is, is evil. I'm so sorry for this notion that you know uh, women shouldn't lead in the church. Whatever it is that you see a previous generation being maybe too heavy-handed in or maybe too uh, volatile in how they express themselves to an overcompensation in the next generation, which is the generation we're in. Same thing happening in this time period where you see a, a desire to eliminate all violence, to eliminate even a concept of war that never again can this happen. And so there's going to be big movements. This is when the League of Nations is going to uh, be founded. And its entire goal is to basically maintain peace. And so they want every nation in the world to come together. And if one nation gets attacked, well, then all the other nations of the world will stand with that one nation and say, back off. I mean, it's a pretty cool idea if you, if you think about it on paper. It didn't really work uh, that way. But, and that was mainly because no one wanted to fight. So what if this nation does come in and say, yeah, we're going to take over Austria. And then all the other nations are like, well, if we stand against him, that would mean war. So let's not do anything. 
And that's exactly what happened. The love for peace was so extreme that they actually began to glaze over and look past any violations. And of course, evil thrives in such a situation. So in this process leading up to World War II, there's about, it it is a 20-year process, but the the 10 years previous, if we were to say around 1930 to to 1939, you're going to have this radical disarmament where nations are literally, like the United States is telling France it needs to disarm. And because France and Germany are just right next to each other, and they're mortal allies. They always have been. And Germany has nothing, and France is bloated with military strength. And so Americans are pleading, or pleading, it's probably not the best way, it's making, even forcing uh, France to disarm. And Great Britain was disarming. They're actually getting rid of weapons. Meanwhile, in secret, what are the Germans doing? Stockpiling, building. And so what you have is a flip of, of strength and power that is taking place uh, so let's go through this. It's, a, it's an extremely fascinating thing because I'm going to tie this into our spiritual life. I mean, history has, only has value to the point where it impacts us and how we live today. It, just to fill your head with information about the past, you know, it, it might be fascinating. It might be some mental candy, but it's a waste of time unless it's actually moving you, changing you, and in, in, in augmenting your life so that you live better. So Paul the Apostle is going to talk about a weapon stockpile, a a weapon stockpile that we as Christians have. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You see, we have been given weaponry. We have been given all that we need to be strong against a foe that desires to destroy us. So, but our weapons are not of this world, they are not, as it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not earthly. They are actually spiritual. And they are good for pulling down strongholds. Now, those strongholds aren't like some castle uh, that has been built up, and we're going to come up and pray, and it's going to fall, even though that can't happen. God can do those things. That's not what it means. It's talking about spiritual powers that it's able to bring down because the enemy will establish strongholds in nations, strongholds in individuals, and we have been given weapons as a people, as believers, to actually address these spiritual powers, which, by the way, if you address spiritual powers, you set people free. Back in the days of David uh, and his mighty men, they fought physical battles against physical enemies. So say the Philistines uh, and the Israelites are fighting, They're engaged in a physical warfare with physical weapons, and the solution for David is to wipe out and actually kill Philistines. As Christians, we have an elevated battle. In other words, because of Christ's cross and his shed blood, it actually lifts us to a higher plane of fighting where we are able to fight something that David couldn't. We are fighting the spiritual powers that are puppeteering the Philistines. So as a result, we can snip the puppet strings that are holding the Philistines in bondage and actually see, get this, the Philistines repent and come over to the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a a new feature. In other words, our goal isn't to wipe out Philistines. It's to deal with the spiritual puppeteers that are hindering and holding captive the Philistines. And so 
that's just showing us as Christians that we do have a warfare and our weapons are not earthly like David's were. They're actually at a higher plane and they're able to accomplish something that David's weapons couldn't accomplish. Paul in Ephesians 6.13 is gonna say, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. We have been given weapons. Everything we need for this battle has been supplied. We are rich in and wealthy in the ability to keep an enemy at bay. There is actually no reason why the enemy should have the upper hand in our life or in this world in which we live. Now, if we were to take a quick survey of our lives and the world in which we live, that doesn't match. We'd say, well, the devil sure did uh, get the upper hand. What's going on? Now, he doesn't actually legally have the upper hand, but he has the upper hand from non-resistance. In other words, the fact that we have not resisted the devil, the fact that we have not utilized the weapons of our warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, as a result, he has moved upon this world, upon this nation, or even upon our lives in a way that is highly aggressive. And so for each of us, we need to recognize that radical disarmament of the Christian life to say, oh, well, you know, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to actually uh, you know, cause any friction out there actually creates to the deterioration of the destruction of truth. This is not, I mean, it sounds all loving, but it actually is the exact opposite. So I'm gonna give you a few truths as we walk through this, fascinating things to chew on. You can have weapons and not use them. I know it's a profound statement, isn't it? But you could have the weapons that are necessary to deal with the enemy's hostile movements against your life, but that doesn't mean you're using them. Sometimes it's because you don't know you have them, and that's definitely a fair statement. Sometimes we know we have them, but we don't know how to use them. I mean, there's two, you know, you, you could have a sword, and you have the blade of a sword, and you have the hilt of a sword, but imagine that you grab the blade and try and swing the hilt. It's not effective, and it's going to hurt your hand, right? And so if you don't know how to utilize the weapons you have, that, that's, uh, again, another reason. But sometimes they just lie there in disuse. We know we have them, but we actually... Oh, it takes so much energy uh, to, to use it. Have you ever heard of the sloth in Proverbs, the sluggard, who he has a piece of bread, but to lift, he's hungry, but to lift that bread to his mouth, that's a lot of work. And so he almost chooses to go hungry. We will choose to even remain in defeat because it's so much work to actually lift that bread to the mouth. And how many of us die with the bread in our hand? Let me give you another truth. You can have armor and not put it on. That's why Paul is going to say, put on the armor. In other words, there is a need for us to utilize what we have. Another truth, you can have a victory, a total hold over your enemy, and not exercise it. Now, what's interesting is if you were to say, could you give me an example of that? I'd say World War II. <laughs> that is the example. Because here we have the allies that have supreme command over Germany. Germany, again, I, I said this in at least one of the other two messages I've given on this. Germany is at a, since they were considered the, uh, the aggressor, the guilty party in World War I, the penalty is on them. They've gone from 6 million standing army to 100,000. With 100,000 against uh, you know, France's millions of, in their standing army with uh, Great Britain and its commonwealth. I mean, Great Britain has India, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, and itself. I mean, it's just like loaded for bear. 
right? And so they need to draw on Commonwealth soldiers. They've got them, right? And so they have all the power, not to mention all the other allied nations, including uh, like the United States. Russia can't stand Germany. And so as a result, you could very easily get Soviet Russia to come to your aid as well. In other words, you have so much strength, so much ability to keep Germany in its place. And the same is true with us. You can have a victory, a total hold over your enemy, and not exercise it. Another truth. You can have your enemy totally weakened and keep him that way. But you can also enable your enemy to rebuild strength and to regain positions that he rightfully and legally has lost. How how would we do that And yet, so many of us have become experts in giving away territory. I've I've used this illustration with my kids a lot, that we sit in our living room, and it's cold outside in Colorado, so let's just imagine that it's negative 10 degrees. And I say, hey guys, uh, what would happen if we just slid open the sliding door right over there? So there's a sliding door right off to the side of our living room. And, uh, you know, because it's like 70 degrees in our house right now. But what would happen if we slid open that door? Well, the cold from outside would come in here. Now, you don't need to slide open the door and just leave it open and let the cold come in. And what if we left it uh, open all night long? Well, and it's a blizzard outside and it's gusting winds. You might have a snow drift on your sofa. You didn't need to have a snow drift on your sofa. How did it get there? It was because of your negligence to do something that you knew you ought not to do and then not correct it. See, imagine that I open the sliding door. It's like, whoa, cold, slide shut. You see, we do that a lot in our Christian life. I'm not encouraging you to slide open the door, figure out that it's cold, and close it. However, one of the amazing works of the Holy Spirit is that when you feel the cold, he also shows you exactly what to do, close it. Many of us open it, the devil jumps on top and says, you opened it, now you're stuck. Look at you, you are a piece of junk. And we leave it open under the banner of condemnation, almost like we can't help it, as opposed to recognizing that God has given us the equipment to close it. And so if you ever find a window or a door open in your life and the Holy Spirit touches that, close it. It's that simple. You actually have the position, but if you relent and give up that position, that which is outside will move inside. The snowdrift will be in your living room. The cold and the chill from outside will overtake your warmth. And as a result, will quench it. So What should you do? At any point in time, you should exert the authority that you have and close that door. The snow will melt, you'll find, very quickly. Another truth. You can have the sort of truth that sets men free and not swing it. So, for instance, in our discipleship here, we are walking through the sort of truth, if you want to even say it that way. I'm giving you the tools to say, cut that. Cut that vine that is choking you. Cut it. You have the tool right there in your hand. Use it, snip it. And so you can have the weapon that actually sets men free and still not use it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I recognize that. But sometimes there's an insanity to sin to the point where it's like, oh, there's nothing I can do. Just you can't listen to the devil's reasoning. God has given you what you need to be set free. If you have the victory, why would you be afraid to use it? Well, you could ask the allies the same question. What, what exactly is going on? Uh, Great Britain, France, America. What's going on that you guys are su- such pushovers right now? It's interesting that the subtle ideas of political correctness that can creep in and actually deviate us from soundness of reason. 
Because to keep an evil at bay, you must exert the authority you possess. So let's, let's look at some you must nots. I'm going to give you a quick list. If you're going to keep the evil at bay in this world or in your life, you must not, number one, overlook your enemy's aggressive movements. Number two, excuse his blatant violations. Three, turn a deaf ear to his evil designs. Four, turn a blind eye towards his treatment of the weak. Or five, supply him with military goods. Now, each of those things falls into the category of absolute lunacy, right? That you would actually see your enemy making an aggressive movement and not do something about it, especially when you're the stronger party. And yet, if you look at the allies, they knew totally what Hitler was doing. And they did nothing. He is literally taking aggressive movements in his nation. The first thing he's going to do, he is going to bring about a conscription. That means he's going to bring in soldiers. Remember, he's allowed 100,000 person standing army. He's going to snub his nose at that, and he's going to say, no, I'm going to build an army. And guess what? The allies see him doing it, know it's a violation of the Treaty of Versailles, and do nothing, right? This is an aggressive movement. There's this territory. It's called the Rhineland. It's on the western side of Germany. And part of the treaty says that the Germans cannot occupy the Rhineland. It's Germany. The Rhineland is in Germany, but they can't put soldiers in that territory because that's what a, you know, is adjacent to uh, you know, the French, the Belgium uh, uh, side of things. So, nope, you can't have uh, any occupation over there. Well, guess what uh, Hitler does? Let's go put our new soldiers in the Rhineland. And the Allies do nothing. And you could say, what, what, why would they do that? Well, I could ask you, why do you do that? In other words, the enemy makes an aggressive movement against your soul, and you just sit there and go, well, I don't want war. I don't want to bring that piece of bread all the way to my mouth. I mean, that could lead to a lot of sweat. So excuse his blatant violations. Turn a deaf ear to his evil designs. Did you know that the book Mein Kampf, which is written by Hitler, Adolf Hitler, when he was in prison, tells exactly what his plan is? I mean, in detail, it gives his exact blueprint for what he intends to do. And yet, there it is. Turn a deaf ear to his evil designs. It's like, oh, he wouldn't do that. I mean, it's literally what they say. Oh, he, I, I, I know Hitler. This is what Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister of uh, Great Britain at the time. I, I know him. And I, I don't think those are his intents. Number four, turn a blind eye towards his treatment of the weak. His treatment of the weak, the disabled, the Jews is so shocking that most people don't believe it. And most people struggled to believe it even then. It's like, no. They didn't comprehend this type of evil. And I don't think many of us do either. We oftentimes might liken the devil to maybe some conspiratorial guy who you know, wants to get extra money out of a scheme instead of recognizing that he wants us dead. He wants not just us dead, he wants to see us tortured in how we die. He wants us to die in pain. This is our enemy. He is a nasty guy. And so when we attribute to him a lesser evil, we actually underrate what we are dealing with, just as the Allies did Hitler. Hitler is something very unique in history. Now, I remember my mom saying to me, Eric, you could be like Adolf Hitler. It's like, well, great, thanks, mom. And I understand what she means by that. In other words, we all have the potential for great evil. We do, especially if you yield to it. Yes, but the great evil is what you're yielding to as well. It's like demonic 
uh, injection into your life that wants to actually crush you. And so we cannot turn a blind eye towards this treatment of the weak. Well, look at what we do all the time. There are those around us right now that are suffering, that are dying. The enemy is making a move against the weak, just like Hitler did. He, the way he expresses his vileness towards our God is by going after the very ones that our God cherishes. God cherishes weak. He does. So what does the devil do? He torments them. He will go to them and he'll isolate them. He'll destroy them. And we oftentimes will turn a blind eye because, I mean, to get involved. I, I don't want war. I don't want to get my hands dirty in that. Yet to recognize this is the devil's game. Or supply him with military goods? Uh-huh. Uh, could you imagine doing that? Strange fact. Now, this fact, something's wrong with this fact. I gave this fact the other day, and this is how I have it written down in my notes, which means you could say, well, it must be right. But a million pounds of military goods is actually not that much. I mean, a million pounds, you can get to that pretty quickly, right? So I'm not sure. It could have been a million, million pounds. And that wouldn't be an exaggeration uh, if you study military terminology. It's massive amounts of stuff. But just look at the concept, whether or not my numbers are accurate, because I, I can't just very easily go back and I, don't, I forgot to footnote this particular uh, stat you know, in my studies, so I just have it written there. I'm like, oh, great. Uh, but a million pounds of military goods were stripped from Germany in 1919. But 1.5 million pounds of military goods were then lent to Germany by the U.S. and Great Britain in the forthcoming years. In other words, even if my numbers are too small uh, conceptually, they're right uh, in their, uh, in their, what, what's the term, uh, their relation to one another. In other words, whatever was stripped from Germany, a greater amount was actually given by the very allies because we felt bad for them. I mean, we, we really hurt them in the Versailles Treaty. And now they're the, the weakened party, and we're compassionate people, so we actually give them that strength back in greater number than what they had to give up in the first place. It's funny what we as humans will do to avoid going through the same traumatic season twice. To mention the dangers and threats of Hitler in 1935, 1935, I mean, we're reaching a pinnacle of the aggressive, radical peace movement, where it's just like, no war, no war, no war. And if you were a politician that actually even brought up Hitler, you will not get elected. If you're going to talk about the fact that we need to stop Hitler and we need to go to whatever lengths to do it, you will not get elected. And so it was such a strong movement in the government, and every politician knows. I mean, politicians, they're playing at a certain level. They may have convictions, but they have to, if they're going to get in office, if they're going to have a voice, they need to play to that, right? And you see that in a radical way in Great Britain in the time. The same thing's happening in France uh, as well, too. And so if you were to even bring up the fact that uh, the Hitler menace and we need to do something about it, you are called a warmonger, which is not a compliment, by the way. That's a very ugly term. Even to this day, it's a very ugly term, which means you are so fixated on war and the ugliness of battle. This is grotesque to our society. So how dare you bring this up that we should do something about it? Or fear-mongering, because what does it do? Have you ever had someone say something like, yes, and you know, have you noticed what the uh, radical Muslims are doing in our country? And you know, you know the, the feelings. It's sort of like, could you not talk about that? I don't really want to hear about that, uh, you know, what the enemy is doing in our country, because 
I would sort of like just to mind my own business and live at peace. I get that too. I don't like it. I don't like it when someone's bringing up negative stuff. And it was called fear-mongering. And so if anyone started talking about Hitler, the Nazis, what they're doing to the Jews, what they're doing, uh, you know, the, the fact that they're eyeing Austria and they're going to aggressively move into Austria, the fact that they just didn't, they're, they're rebuilding their military program, you know what everyone would say? It's like, well, it's probably right and appropriate that they would. We should get our military programs down. Let them get equal with us. It's called parity. Let's just let us be, all be equal. I mean, we, should, we were too harsh on the Germans. I mean, this is literally how it was functioning. So I'm going to give you the primer on how to avoid war. So if we had a little elementary school class on this, it's like, okay, in Great Britain and France, their great agenda, and in America at the time, was to avoid war. So what do we need to do to avoid war? So here's our basic lesson. No nation's military power should be greater than another's. If we're all equal, then no one would fight. So like, for instance, we, everyone was concerned that France would attack Germany because they were greater military power. However, France didn't want to fight anyone. They were like, no war, no war. So that wasn't really a problem. But no nation's military power should be greater than another's. Stronger power should disarm to the level of the weaker powers. I mean, if you look at this on paper, you have to admit it has a certain wisdom to it, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Overlook all aggression on the part of the weaker powers and chalk them up as reasonable and necessary responses, bringing correction for past oppressions. So, for instance, in our country, we have minorities that were long-held minorities and have gone through great oppressions. When they do certain things and lash out against uh, the oppressors from past eras, we will overlook it socially for the same exact reason we did, we, we did here. Because Germany was oppressed. The fact that they are just trying to extend their homeland back to the way it was, the fact that they have gone through such trauma and they're just reacting... I mean, they just, they're sick and tired of the treatment we gave them because of the Treaty of Versailles. You can understand that. Just let them, let them have Austria. Let, let, let them conscript again. Let them take the Rhineland. It's okay. You see the thinking? It's like they were oppressed. Give them a break. This is Hitler, though. You need to recognize he desires to eat you for lunch. And so empowering your enemy, you need to have your eyes wide open here. So the disgust of war. Now, I'm not sure if we were to have a vote on how many of us like war. Okay, we may like studying it. It might be fascinating, but to be in it, to have it, I, I don't want war. I have no interest to have America go to war. So let's give a, a quick list of things that would be said about war, especially for those that are disgusted with it, right? War is pain. That's true. War is destruction. Well, that's a good point. War is loss. Yep, a lot of it. War is instability. Mm -hmm. War is discomfort. Yep. War is misery. Yep. Therefore, war is to be avoided at all cost. Okay, now, if that's the only list you ever see when you're growing up, you'd say, war, bah, yuck. But what you're missing is the other side of this coin. You see, there is real pain, destruction, loss, instability, discomfort, and misery. But you could look at the Christian life. Did you know that Christian life and following hard after Jesus is going to lead to pain? It's going to lead to destruction of certain aspects of your life, loss, instability, discomfort, and misery. <laughs> so as a result, following hard after Jesus should be avoided at all costs. You see, there's a flip side to this of the reason why someone would radically follow Jesus. And it's not because we like pain, destruction, loss, instability, discomfort, and misery. That's not the reason I follow Jesus, even though that may come with it. Let's look at the proper use of war. 
War is a deterrent to evil. It always has been. Now, I would love for the fact that, you know, there, there's something called diplomacy. And instead of fighting, we can work it out, right? And so there's nothing wrong with working it out and not having to fight, but there's certain evil powers that refuse to discuss things. And they start, you know, just sort of throwing blows. And the way to deal with that is to stop them. You know, if, if someone came in here and was beating one of you up, what would I want to do? Just watch and go, well, I don't want to intervene. Or would I want to stop it? And if I'm stopping it, I would take the aggressor and I would remove their strength and their position to harm. Well, that's what war is. War is a deterrent against evil to clamp down on the one that is creating an aggressive movement to harm another nation to stop them from doing it, okay? War is a protection of innocence. It's interesting how most people don't bring that up. But when someone is being attacked, actually to protect the innocent, you need to fight. You need to stand up and create a wall. War is a vigorous stand for liberty. In this time, in World War II, the more you study it, the more you begin to realize the liberty of the nations was hanging in the balance. Hitler's rule and reign, when he came into Austria, it's called the Rape of Austria, just to give you an idea. When he came into Poland, what he did to the Polish people is so abominable that it cannot be spoken of. And most people, most historians can't even talk about it. It is too grotesque and too horrible that one nation endured what Poland did. What he did in Soviet Russia, what they did to the Soviet soldiers when they were captured, you capture a soldier, you're going to make them pay. There was no uh, noblesse oblige in this battle. The evil that was perpetrated is so extreme. And so war is a vigorous stand for liberty. In other words, the liberty of nations is hanging in the balance. War is often the only means of peace. I'm saying often, but sometimes in a situation like this, the only way to deal with Hitler is to stop him. It's interesting because I'm going to cover Dietrich Bonhoeffer in an upcoming uh, session, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pacifist who actually, in the Middle East, a German, in the, in the war actually participated in an assassination attempt on Hitler. Isn't that just an ironic? He's a strong Christian pastor who participates in an assassina assassination attempt on Hitler. It failed. And, but what would lead a man to come to that conclusion? The same type of thinking. It's like, we need to stop this man. War is a direct response to a hostile foe that refuses to veer from the path of destruction. War is sometimes necessary. Therefore, war can be a righteous decision. Now, that's the part that we don't oftentimes know how to expose and express because we live in a culture that is in a disarmament phase. We are anti-war to the extreme. I remember seeing, I, you know, when I open up Firefox, I always have these little articles that are being suggested to me. And one of them was talking about how war movies always glorify war and show heroism in it to make people like it. And I was, I was just fascinated by, I didn't read the article, but I was fascinated by the notion. What's the brain behind that? Like, to me, I think it's amazing when they show heroism in war. I'm actually moved by that, right? But this is sort of like, how dare they show heroism in war and cause people to then be attracted to war? I don't think seeing heroism in war causes any of us as men, for instance, to want to go to war. I don't think we, I want to go and hide in a, uh, in a crump hole, you know, next to a whole bunch of, 
you know, yuck uh, poisoned water and, you know, hide out while bombs are going off over my head and just hope for the day. You know, that's not necessarily attractive to me, but I am attracted to heroism of someone in that moment rising up and doing that which is noble and right. Yeah, I like that. A.W. Tozier has a very interesting statement on this concept of what I'm going to call backing into your belief system. In other words, when you see the horrors of war, the destruction of war, the misery of war, and that's all you see, that's all that is told to you, what will you do? You'll back into your belief system away from that to, oh, well, then war must be always evil. And so as a result, you back into your belief system. You know that Christians do this all the time? We back into our belief system because of distortions. If you've ever been exposed to an extreme in Christianity, okay, say you grew up in a legalistic background. Well, what you have a tendency to do is to back into a licentious lifestyle to say, well, I don't think God wants to have any restraint on my life. Now, that's just bad logic, but it actually makes sense inside of those that are going through it. Because when you've seen an extreme, you don't want that extreme. And so the same is true with me. My, my growth in life has been based on trying to mitigate against extreme reactions to what I've seen in the church. Because I've seen things in the church I do not want in my life. I do not want to grow up and be like that guy. I do not want to grow up and be like that guy. So you take either extreme, it's like, well, God, I need someone that I want to grow up to be like. And so it's an interesting struggle in the soul. But in Great Britain and in France and in America, we backed into our belief system to say war is always evil. No matter what, we need to stay out of it. And as a result, we became vulnerable. You know that we had the greatest war in history because of it? In other words, it didn't stem the war. It didn't take it away. It didn't take away the evil to avoid it. Actually, what we need to do is utilize the strength and the authority we have with the truth to address it and keep evil at bay. So the devil desires us to back into our belief system. So I'm going to give you an example. And I'm go- this is a fascinating example to throw your way, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one that many of us, just bringing them up, we've seen abuses. Okay, now maybe not all of you have. I have. I've seen such extreme abuses, and you guys know this because you've been hanging around for a bit. But I had a whole season of my life, and I don't remember how many years it was, but it was a significant season where I could not even say the words Holy Spirit because it meant I was going to be Benny Hinn. It meant that I was going to be an extremist that was sort of cockeyed and cuckoo. And as a result, I didn't, couldn't even say it. And so this is an example of what Tozier is talking about, backing into your belief system. You see an abuse, you see something that is cockeyed, and so you actually go the opposite direction. To even mention the Holy Spirit could mean that you are one of those wild-eyed kooks that follows your emotions instead of the word of God. How to avoid the Holy Spirit weirdness. So I'm going to give you the primer for elementary school levels of how you can avoid Holy Spirit weirdness. Just don't bring them up. Avoid discussion at all costs. You know that there's a whole bunch of churches out there that will not talk about the Holy Spirit. They're very Eric Ludy-esque, you know, old Eric Ludy version where they think that that's the solution. If we just don't talk about the Holy Spirit, then we won't have any other weirdness. They're somewhat correct, right? However, if you know who the Holy Spirit is, you recognize that once you start curbing the Holy Spirit, you're curbing Christianity. You can't have Christianity without the Holy Spirit because everything in Christianity that functions, functions by means of the Holy Spirit. 
The word of God was given to us via the Holy Spirit carrying along its writers. So who gives us understanding in the scriptures? The Holy Spirit. And when we start cutting that out, we are cutting out our chief weapon. How about this one? I I think I told you guys this one the other day. I have a a buddy of mine in Michigan that says this is what his church does. They changed the phrase Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to Father, Son, and Holy Bible. (laughs) That's safe. That's safe. Because you know it needs to be holy something at the end of that list to sound normal and to have the right alliteration, right? So this is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. How about this one? Restrict tongues and prophecy and eliminate all talk of spiritual gifts because that's just going to get you off the rails. I mean, you're going to get weird really quick if you actually believe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. I mean, you just have to stay on your guard because that's the weirdness. That's where it all creeps in. Okay, I get it, by the way. I understand the thinking of the conservative. I understand the thinking that would cause us to back away and say, yeah, it's that, and we try and pinpoint it. What's funny is we're pinpointing the wrong thing. What we need to pinpoint is the flesh, the power of sin at work within the church. People that desire to disturb, there's actually people that will creep into the church with the purpose of twisting scripture to get us to back away from truth. Make Christians feel unwelcome if they dare to press these points. So if anyone starts bringing up the Holy Spirit, you make it very clear that they're not welcome here in this church. If they say, what a... What is, the Bible seems to talk about tongues uh, here and spiritual gifts. Are we going to address that in our church? Uh-oh, black mark on that person. And now the pastors get together and go, we'd have to watch out for this guy. He's like one of those wackos. When all he did was ask, he could have been a new believer just reading through the text of Scripture going, what's this? But now we have to watch out for that person. Okay, I've been around this rendition of Christianity for a long time, and I have thought it okay i've had the same thoughts go through my own head so the disgust of holy spirit weirdness so remember my list on war it was similar to this the holy spirit can be unpredictable the holy spirit can make people do things the holy spirit creates division the holy spirit disturbs people in our body the holy spirit leads to instability the holy spirit distracts people from the text isn't that an ironic one therefore the holy spirit is to be avoided at all costs I could actually go through that list and I could give you evidence that would back up each one of those things that I have even witnessed. Not just that conservative people out there are concerned about it. It's like, yeah, I've seen all of those things happen. However, it wasn't the Holy Spirit that did it. In other words, just because someone's like, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, doesn't mean they have the Holy Spirit. Just because someone speaks in tongues that sounds strangely similar to that guy's tongues, the same sounds strangely similar to that guy's tongue, and they all learned from the same person going to repeat after me, Just because they have that doesn't mean it's real tongues. So the fact that someone could talk about the Holy Spirit doesn't make it genuine. And the way that you even test the Holy Spirit is against the word. And so actually, now let me contrast this with what we could call the proper understanding of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, let's remember this, God. So when you try and trim out the Holy Spirit, you need to remember who you're trimming out. You're trimming out God. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God to show us something very specific, the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit only speaks that which is in agreement with the word. He never violates that. He speaks that which is in agreement with the word of God in text, the Bible, and in person, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers. Could you imagine cutting out that? Now suddenly you have no power for your Christian life. A believer, oh sorry, there's more to that one. The Holy Spirit is the one that empowers a believer to actually live out Christianity. 
The Holy Spirit is the one that brings unity in the church. Isn't that interesting? Because the other one said it brings division. But it brings division when we allow the flesh in. When it's like, oh, he's with the Holy Spirit, but I'm not with the Holy Spirit, then we divide. It's like, but the Holy Spirit is actually the one that knits us together. The Holy Spirit is the bringer of life and truth. Therefore, the Holy Spirit must not be prohibited from leading the church. So I'm giving you a parallel, okay? I'm not going to equate the Holy Spirit with war directly. However, I'm showing you how we can set down our weapons. You see, if you, if you could pick the chief weapon of all weapons that you've been given, because some of you could say prayer. Yeah, but what enables prayer? The Holy Spirit. Some of you could say obedience. Yeah, but what enables obedience? The Holy Spirit. What is the chief weapon that we've been given that is not carnal but is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds? We've been given the life, the power, and the authority of Jesus Christ via the Holy Spirit. Radical disarmament. Let's lay down our chief weapon. This is insanity talking. Let's lay down our chief weapon, our chief strength, our primary power, because in wielding the great strength of the Holy Spirit, we are making people in the church uncomfortable. That's insanity, guys. That doesn't even make sense, but this is how we are thinking today. We don't want to actually be Christians the way the Bible describes us to be because then we'd make people uncomfortable. We don't want to say that Jesus is the only way because that would make people feel uncomfortable. So as a result, we set down the chief weapon that we carry, which is the gospel of salvation unto the lost, and we set it down for sake of appeasement to a culture that desires the destruction of truth. Winston Churchill. So he's over in France looking at the, the lines uh, that they're building, the battle lines that they're building, because obviously war is now looking uh, like it's, uh, it's going to happen. In talking to all these highly competent French officers, one had the sense that the Germans were the stronger and, the Fra and that France no, had no longer the life thrust to mount a great offensive. She would fight for her existence. Voilà tout. That means that's all. There was the fortified Siegfried line with all the increased firepower of modern weapons. In my own bones, too, was the horror of the Somme and Passchendaele offensives, which are the two greatest loss points for the, the British uh, military in World War I. And everyone's feeling it. The French don't want to fight. The, Germ the, the British don't want to fight. The Germans look too strong. This is the way many of us are right now. We see the mounting powers of the enemy that has been non-resisted. <laughs> we have not done anything about him for decades. Just let him build his arsenal. Now we're sitting here going, well, we'll just be on the defensive. We'll hang out here, but that's all. Volatou. I don't speak very good French, guys. While we are disarming, the enemy is aggressively building up his military strength. In this dark time, the basest sentiments received acceptance or passed unchallenged by the responsible leaders of the political parties. In 1933, the students of the Oxford Union, under the inspiration of a Mr. Jode, passed their ever shameful resolution. This is what they said in the, the House. That this House refuses to fight for king and country. It was easy to laugh off such an episode in England, but in Germany, in Russia, in Italy, in Japan, those are all the Axis powers, those are the ones that are going to be standing against uh, them, the idea of a decadent, degenerate Britain took deep root and swayed many calculations. Even the, in Parliament, they're saying, we will not fight for Britain. And guess who's listening in? Hitler. And he's like, uh-huh. Well, I think I'll go take Austria then. 
yeah, I think I'll actually uh, in, initiate the uh, conscription again. Paul the Apostle, and this is a reminder of what our battle is. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle isn't against Hitlers and Germans, German soldiers. And remember, I'm German, so I can say all these things, uh, whereas some people could say, well, you know, you're, you're French, Eric, and, you know, I know you're anti-German. Actually, I'm German. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So how do we fight this battle? I had a dream, and this is how I'm going to finish. I had a dream uh, a long time ago. I mean, we're talking 20 years ago or so. And it still to this day sits deep in my soul that in this dream, I remember I was laboring doing what I was doing. There was this other group whose chief weapon was love. And at first, it just sounds so like ridiculous, almost like you need a, a VW uh, bus, you know, painted with flowers on the side if your chief weapon is love. I mean, come on. And yet these people would come up and they would listen to everyone. They would hug them. They would administer the truth of the gospel. But their, their, their weapon was love. And they were melting hearts everywhere they went. And I remember they came up to me, and I was rather stiff, right? And they loved me, and they served me. And in this dream, I was so moved. In fact, I would have said in that dream, I have never been moved spiritually at the level I was by this love brigade that came up to me and just washed my feet and cared for my soul. It's like they understood what I was going through and they prayed for me, they stood for me, they hugged me and I was like so mystified by whatever this was and I, was, and I woke up and I was like, God, I want to do that. And it's hard when you live in this world to know exactly what that means. How do I take the truth of Jesus and not compromise it but administer it with love? That's what I want to do. We have weapons. Our weapons aren't bazookas. They're not artillery shells. Our chief weapon is the Holy Spirit who wants to move inside of us and work through us to administer love, grace, kindness. But he's not going to compromise on truth and justice. He is a good God and he always is the same and he'll be the same inside of us as believers. Father, build us into the love brigade. Lord, men and women who do not stare at our weapons, but use them. And Holy Spirit, may you be our chief weapon. And may you work with love in and through us today. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.